Breakups and divorce can be extremely painful, lonely, and confusing. But I believe your breakup can be your biggest breakthrough. I'm Lindsay Ellison, author, coach, speaker, and single mom of two awesome young men. Welcome to a podcast about finding joy and inner peace after a breakup. You may not be able to see what's on the other side yet, but I promise if you do the healing work, your life will transform in ways you never thought possible. Welcome to Unbreakable You. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is boundaries. And the reason why I love talking about this is because I think boundaries sound kind of like an easy thing. We all know what they are, but we all struggle with honoring them or having them or having someone else respect them in a relationship. And so as you know, when we do not have healthy boundaries with ourselves or with other people, typically that is a setup for failure in relationships of all kinds, whether it's at work or your family, siblings, or your romantic partner. And today I am bringing on probably one of the biggest experts on boundaries and This is Terry Cole. Terry is a licensed psychotherapist, global relationship and empowerment expert, as well as the author of her latest book, Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. So take a listen, see where you might think that your boundaries are a little skewed and What about your past and about your childhood and your cultural influences affected your boundaries? I highly recommend this book and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello, Terry Cole. Welcome to the show. Well, hi, Linz. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to have you here and I've known you for, gosh, about 10 years at this point, but you and I haven't really connected up until recently. So I'm just so excited to talk to you about your new book and all the awesome things you've got going on. Well, thanks, my friend. I'm excited too. So let's talk about your new book, Boundary Boss. Really, really excited because I think one of the biggest issues that I think, as you know, um, a lot of women struggle with are boundaries. And I know my audience struggles with it. And so I'm going to dive into a little bit about some of the components as to why we struggle with it. But first, I want to just hear and have everyone hear of what inspired you to write this book. What do they say? You know, you teach what you most need to learn. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, I can say that I was a boundary disaster without exaggeration and that I spent most of my 20s not understanding why I was having so much pain in my relationships and what the conflict was and why was I so friggin' resentful of people and why did I feel unknown? Even in relationships, I was like lonely. There There were so many signs, but you know, even though I had been in therapy, I, I was not connecting the dots to them being related to my inability to talk true if there was a problem, my inability to express even my preferences, but definitely not my deal breakers. Like that was so painful. If life was good, amazing. But when life was hard, 
I had all of these dysfunctional behaviors like ghosting people, um, being withdrawn in anger, using passive aggressive communication, stonewalling, because I nobody taught me what it means to have healthy personal boundaries and that they would be the key to my own liberation. And that is exactly what happened. And then when I became a psychotherapist, I just could not believe the epidemic. I was like, wow, I was definitely not alone. Every person who walks in my door, every client, I could literally connect the dots backwards to their presenting problem, to the fact that they have no idea how to assert their boundaries. So I came up with a, a more simple way of defining boundaries because what I found generally is that people are overwhelmed by the meaning, by the idea, by the myths around boundaries. It means you have to be mean, you're rejecting people all the time, uh, all the things that are not true. So my definition of having good boundaries, first of all, what are they? They're your own personal rules of engagement. This is how we let others know what's okay with us and what's not okay with us. So if you think about it that way, it makes it much more simplified. And then I go a teeny bit deeper in how I teach it in the book and in my courses is that it really is about you knowing your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers, and having the ability to communicate them when you so choose. Because it's really one thing, you know, Lindsay, obviously there's a huge difference between knowing them yep. and being able to actually say them. Yeah, exactly. I love how you say the word epidemic. I've never really heard that word as it relates to boundaries. So I'm curious, based on what you know and any research that you might have done in preparation for this book, where is this coming from? Why do you think this is happening? And why is this such a problem for us? Well, listen, th this has been happening since the beginning of time in respect to prescribed gender roles. Most of us were raised, if you were raised as a woman, you were raised and praised for being a self-abandoning codependent. <laughs> like this is what was we were aspiring to is don't make waves. How, how often in childhood did anyone here be a good girl? And listen, it's not only women, but it could be be a good boy. For girls in particular, it was like, where's my happy girl? Turn that frown around. Like, oh, yeah. don't be a troublemaker. Don't be a drama queen. Don't stir the pot. Uh, don't be too full of yourself. Don't be demanding, right? So somehow we got it in our minds and it's the way that we were raised that having a preference is like a burden for another person. And so... I, I, the way that I teach it is that we have to reveal what's in the basement of your mind, which is your unconscious, which is your downloaded boundary blueprint. So you were raised in a different family than I was raised in. So we're all messed up in our own unique way from our families of origin, really, because everyone and it's the country, the culture, the society that you are raised in, because some are even more misogynistic than U.S. and North American culture, where it's still to this day, where there's an expectation that the more selfless a woman is, the more revered she is, right? What do we think about? Oh, she would give you the shirt off her back. Oh, I'm yeah. like, Betty, keep your shirt on. Like, why? 
<laughs> be discerning about who you're giving your shirt to, you know, can't just be anybody. But again, we were trained and, and we got positive feedback for self-abandoning. So it makes sense. Like this is, this is the why, which is there's historical and there's all kinds of data. Listen, women couldn't even vote until 18 something. It's only been a hundred and something years and women of color, forget it. Have it four times as bad when it comes to boundaries because they didn't even get the, the ability to vote really, even when it was passed because racism was so, and still is so, profound and prolific, I guess we could say it's everywhere. Right. And it was dangerous, right? If if you were stepping out and asserting yourself, women were property up until like 1880 or something, property yeah. of the men they were married to. So you really think about a lot has changed in historically what would be considered a short period of time. But we have so much data that makes the way that we relate to boundaries, many of us make so much sense. And I find that if we do have boundaries, women, we're a bitch. And maybe we can be only to your point of your early adoption of what you thought were boundaries, such as, you know, gaslighting or stonewalling or or the words you had used. uh, We think that's a boundary. It seems as though I think we're, we're so afraid of being labeled as a bitch, especially in the workplace. Uh, You find I found that when I was in the professional workplace, a man who has boundaries is strong and and Mm -hmm. um, idealized. And for a woman, we are bitches and oh, yeah, bitches, drama queens, rigid, um, hysterical, controlling a shrew. I mean, we could keep going. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I love about your book, because maybe there are women who are like that because they don't know how to properly articulate their boundaries. And then, you know, that's not healthy either. But I want to talk to you about one of the things that you said, and this is a word that I'm going to be stealing from you from now and forever, which is high functioning codependency. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you mean by that. What, what is a high functioning codependent? Well, I'll tell you the origin. I actually created that term because when I would see codependent tendencies, in my therapy clients, and I would bring it up, they had this preconceived notion about what codependency was. Their mind was like the Melody Beatty, codependent no more, you have to be involved with an addict, you're the enabler, you're weak, you're trapped, la la la. And these were alpha women, basically, in my therapy practice, many of them high functioning, super capable. So if I would say, oh, hey, what you're that interaction, what you're describing, the way you're reacting is the codependent reaction, they would be like, no, 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 I'm not dependent on squat lady. Like everyone's dependent on me. I'm making all the dough. I'm doing all the things. I'm like, clearly, you don't know what codependency is. So as soon as I added the high functioning codependency, it was like my clientele were like, oh yeah, totally me. Yeah. So, and it was myself too. So I was a super codependent in my twenties for sure. But again, I never identified that way for the same reason. So what it means to me, my definition of being codependent is being overly invested in the feeling states, the outcomes, the circumstances, the decisions of the people in our lives to the detriment 
of our internal peace, our psychological, spiritual, financial wellness, physical wellness. Because here's the thing, we're lovers, right? Of course, we're going to be invested. We want the people in our lives to be happy. So that does not make you codependent, right? Being a loving, caring person does not make you codependent. When your best friend has a problem and that the instant they get in touch with you, you have anxiety, it becomes your problem. You are on Google. So true. (laughs) You are looking, you are connecting them. You know someone, you've got a friend, you're making phone calls. That is a codependent response. Now, it doesn't mean if your friend asks you to help her or him that you wouldn't do that. I'm talking about our first and natural reaction. If someone we love has a problem, if we make that our problem, that's codependency. And I always say to my clients, I want you to check your urgency. Mm. So we all can identify with that feeling of urgency. If the moment one of your grown children, your spouse, your partner, your best friend, your sister has a problem, if suddenly it's a 10 alarm fire for you inside of you, that is a codependent reaction. And the reason why it's unhealthy, first of all, it takes up too much bandwidth. We can't do it forever. So there's that. You will get sick physically, all the things, autoimmune disorders. But when you really think about what you're doing, when we then take on that person's problem, we are centering ourselves in the middle of what is going on for them rather than centering it on them. When you get healthier, when I got healthier in my life, I was able to say, okay, so what do you think you should do? Mm. What is your gut saying? But if you did know, what would it be? How are you feeling? How can I best support you right now in what is happening? I learned that A, I'm not God and don't know what people need to learn in this lifetime, like I just thought I did, but it's really, I had a very brilliant therapist teach me this many years ago, whereas one of my sisters was in a terrible situation with an abusive person and blah, blah. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? And she was like, Terry, what makes you think you know what your sister needs to learn in this lifetime? Right. And I was like, well, I think we can all agree it doesn't have to be in an abusive relationship or whatever. And she was like, no, I can't agree. I don't know what she needs to learn. But do you know what's really going on? And I was like, obviously not. Can you clue me in? And she (laughs) said, you know, you've worked really hard to create internal peace and a pretty harmonious life. Your sister's life being out of control is really messing with your internal peace. So you want it to be cleaned up. You want it to be fixed. You want to fix it so you can stop feeling that way. Mm. But what you don't get is that it's not yours to fix. So if you need to draw a boundary with the amount of contact you have with your sister while she's involved in an abusive relationship, do that, which is what I did. I was like, I can't listen to you talk about what an abusive idiot this person is. Every day, you feel better. I feel like someone just barfed toxic waste on me when I get off the phone. She's like, I always feel better when I'm done talking to you. I'm like, I always feel horrible. I'm done talking (laughs) to you. Thank you. And I said, but if you ever really do want to get out, I'm still your person and I'll still be here. And about nine months later, 
she called me and was like, hey, if that offer still stands, I really want to get out. I was like, getting in my car, can't wait to come get you. And I helped, I did, my husband and I helped. And she got out of that situation, went back to school, became a, you know, a home health person, like, and didn't go back to him and has been away and got sober and all the things. But here's the thing, had I not stepped back, maybe those things would have happened. But then she would have been idolizing me because I was the hero child in my family. And it would be, oh, I owe it all to Terry. She did it Mm -hmm. this way. She owed it all to herself. It wasn't, I didn't save her. She saved herself. And yes, I became a part of the solution in the way that I could, in the way that made sense. But instead of fixing her problem, and this is the thing when you're a high-functioning codependent, being so highly capable, Hmm. it's unbelievable what we can do. But there is a cost. And when I understood from my therapist that it wasn't my obligation or my job to fix what was not working in my sister's life, I was so relieved. I felt like I had to do it to be a good sister. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know I was doing it to soothe my own anxiety. You know, I didn't know any of that. But I also felt like loyalty, like I have to. Who's going to if I don't? Oh, you know who's going to if I don't? She is. And she did. So there's something that I always share that that story because it's a powerful story of learning the um, what codependency really is and what's really going on. It's much less flattering. Like I love to think of myself as like Mother Teresa. But then when I really got down to the brass tacks of what it was, I was like, oh, so it's not because I'm oh, so friggin loving and amazing. It's because I'm uncomfortable. And I want to be less uncomfortable. Well, that's different, you know? I, I so appreciate you saying that. I mean, that that is almost one of the nuanced things of codependency that we don't, it's kind of like what, what's really going on behind the curtain. Yes. It's, it's about we're, we're uncomfortable. Your story and your example reminded me of when I was at the Meadows last year and mm-hmm. we had this group and all the groups were color coded. We never really knew what the color codes meant, but we all started to try to figure it out and I was the blue group and we kind of dubbed ourselves as the caretakers. We're the highly functional codependents. And Mm -hmm. one of the rules that we had was we had to listen to someone and we couldn't say anything about it because what we all wanted to do was caretake and we wanted to offer advice. And I think that's one of the misnomers of girlfriends and friendships that my girlfriend is sharing this problem with me and I have to take care of I have to give her advice like that's really stressful that's a lot of work and instead we and I learned this and I and I say this now with my kids and my partner and whomever is would you like my feedback and that feedback is or would you like my support because a lot of the times sometimes people are just sharing stuff with you they just want to be heard They don't need you to fix them. So that's one thing. But one thing I wanted to ask you was look, conversely, if I find that someone can violate your boundaries by calling you up your best friend and then dumping on you, Mm -hmm. just giving them their, you know, like, oh God, this happened, where you're literally having them on speakerphone and you're doing, you're you're literally making dinner and you haven't said a word in Edgewise. So what would you kind of what kind of boundary advice would you give to those who have the friends or the mother or the sister who just dumps on you? 
Um, because yeah. I don't think people realize that that is a, a, a violation of your boundaries without asking, hey, can I have 10 minutes of your time? Yep. But here's the thing. It's on us to create the boundaries. And that is a boundary with your phone, a boundary with technology, a boundary yes. with your sleep. It, these are internal boundaries. So my feeling is, because I don't like talking on the phone unless I want to, my phone is always on silent. Nobody, literally no person can just call me up and get me on the phone. My home phone, I don't even, I have a message that's like, hey, this phone is only for emergencies if we lose power. So don't leave a message if we don't listen. <laughs> I like, <love> it. <laughs> I, I'm so clear. And I think that what you're talking about is better self-protection boundaries around your sacred time. Mm -hmm. So knowing my brain is dead after 5 p.m. So I probably don't want to talk to anyone, even, even the people I choose to talk to. I don't, I won't, don't want to talk to anyone. Definitely not after seven for sure, but each person is different. What you're really talking about is when you have a friend who is an energy vampire and who is sort of a conversation dominator and, you know, you become a professional listener, even though that's not what you necessarily want to be. And I think either we get to a point if it's the situation, like with my sister's situation, where literally they're talking about, it's like same shit, different day. Nothing is changing. They just can't wait to tell you the new drama, the new offense, the new thing that happened. Yeah. That's their drama. They're addicted to that for whatever their reasons are. And I've had this with friends too, saying, hey, we've spent many, many, many hours talking about this. And I love you. And I have no doubt that you will figure it out. But I don't clearly talking to me about it is not helping that. And it's really stressful to me. So if you want to brainstorm something, fine. But if there's other people that you can vent to, that would be great. Now, that's a very direct conversation to have. Some people think they can't do that. But instead of putting yourself in a situation to have to have that conversation, the better your boundaries are if you have an away message on your email so people aren't expecting you to get back to them immediately right. that says hey i check my email on wednesdays and fridays i will get back to you then um if you let people know oh hey people in my lab all know my phone is always on silent they know it if you want me text me and if i'm free i'll go back to you if i'm not if i don't get back to you i'm either busy i'm sleeping my phone's off like that's how I've set it up in my lab because I spent way too many years being on call for like all the people all the time. Yeah. And what ended up happening is I ended up resenting the people instead of seeing it as, oh, I have a right. I didn't know when in my 20s how to create those boundaries. But when you do, you can actually really be present for your friend if you're not letting her dominate your cooking time or your family time. Or, you know, everything can't be a five alarm fire when it's especially when it's someone who is talking about the same crap and nothing is changing. Oh, God. Yeah, I know we all have one of those and we love them and they're, you know, but it's just same shit, different day. I love that. So actually, that yeah. leads into my next question. And you talk about in your book, boundary destroyers mm. and that the normal rules of boundary engagement don't apply. So what is a boundary destroyer? I really love that word. Well, that covered a lot of ground, but it covers narcissists. It covers sort of the cluster B personality disorders if we're talking about 
like actually diagnosable or people who are just super self-centered or super difficult, even if they don't have a diagnosis, right? And we're not about diagnosing people, but you know the behaviors. And I know with the work that you do, you for real know the behaviors. Because the way that a normal person, someone who doesn't have, let's say someone who's not a narcissist, the way they'll respond to a boundary request will be one of a few ways. Either they'll say, wow, thanks for telling me. I didn't know that. I'll really work on that great. Uh, Or they'll be like, I don't know why you didn't tell me sooner. They might be defensive, but they're not going to horrendously punish you. They're not going to find a way to get back at you. There might be a moment or two of conflict around it, but it's not going to be horrible, right? With a narcissist or these other cluster B personality, it's like dangerous. So what I, to, to draw a boundary, because any information you give folks like that can be used against you. So what I really did in that chapter was I covered a lot of the most common manipulation tactics. And you write, you have written quite extensively about this. So that people who don't behave this way, because if you have not been gaslit by someone, Hmm. it's really hard to believe that there are people out there doing it all the time to other people. Right. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Because you wouldn't do it. So someone intentionally trying to make you question your own reality or make you feel like you're going crazy or straight up lie to your face to deny your reality again, so that you're more dependent on them. It's all these manipulation tactics. You might go, no, who would do that? I want to be like lots and lots and lots of people would do that. So it's being aware in that chapter, the the boundary suggestions that I have, if you're involved with someone like that, are way more protective and sort of stepping back from the situation. And it's so tempting if you're involved with a super difficult personality to be like, but I want them to understand. P.S. Uh-huh. They're not going <laughs> to stop. It's they don't just care. stop. Stop bashing your your head against that same exact brick wall. Find other people to understand and and get really clear. So I also, in the book, help people sort of go through an inventory of trying to figure out, is this person in my life? Without that, again, we're, we're not diagnosing anyone, but behavior is behavior. If you tell someone something in confidence and in anger, three days later, they throw it back in your face, something that is tender, that is evidence that they are emotionally untrustworthy. Yep. That's it. So we're looking for someone who is emotionally untrustworthy, which is different than someone who might be clueless. You know, we can't say, well, this person is a boundary bully if you've never expressed your boundary desire to them. If you have never made a simple request and and my clients a lot of times would say, well, they should just know. I'm like, no, what what are they? We've got a magic eight ball. Nobody knows. And some people are dense and that's the truth. Some people are, do not, you know, they might be on the spectrum. They, they do not, they're not um, dialed into the nuances of social cues. So it is our job as grownups to make the simple uh, request, you know, negotiate for our needs or the things that we want to simply share our preferences with the people in our lives, because we've been sold this bill of goods that like being easy breezy, like everyone was raised to want to be like the cool chick, like it's fine. It's all good. You know why we keep saying it's all good. 
is it? And why, why is having a preference not good? Yeah. We all have preferences, right? So it's about honoring, knowing your own preferences and desires, and then sharing them readily and being okay if someone is like, no, I don't really feel like having Mexican food tonight, but can we do it in two days? Whatever. Like, because what I find when you have the disease to please, people who are very um, dialed into the approval of others and codependent and overfunctioning and overgiving and overdoing, when you bump up against someone who's got some good boundaries and who might assert themselves, you can get really pissed where you're like, look at Betty. She's got some nerve yep. taking care of herself when I don't. I'm, I'm last on my own list all day, every day. Right. So when you have disordered boundaries, that's what life is like. Either it's very lonely because you might have two rigid boundaries where somebody does something and you just ghost them. You're just like, bye, you're out of my life. Right. That is too rigid of a boundary. Mm -hmm. So I never look at boundaries as weak or, or strong. Right. It's are they if they're effective or they're ineffective. Mm. Do they create more understanding in your life? Do people know you more intimately or do they get in the way of that happening? Actually, I created a really great quiz and it's just boundaryquiz.com. It's free, 13 questions. Awesome. Probably take people six minutes to do it. But it, I created these archetypes so that you can actually, anybody listening who's interested can get an idea of what is your boundary style when you're stressed? Because listen, when all things are good, it's, it's easy to share your preference. It's, it's when we're in a constricted state, usually, that it's much harder to share how we feel or what we want or set a limit or say no. I love that. Oh, boundaryquiz.com. I will put that in the show notes. Final question, or kind of as we're wrapping up, you talk about a boundary revolution, and I love that. So it's kind of a ripple effect that you're hoping to achieve from the book. So tell us what that is and, and, and what you're trying to achieve with that. I'm really trying to stop the cycle of pain that this creates in families and generations. And if you think about your downloaded boundary blueprint, that was handed down from yep. generation to generation. And it's kind of like an architectural blueprint for a house that someone else designed like a hundred years ago. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Perfect, like, do you exactly. really want to live? It's like the olden days that, that that's when that thing came into being. And so what I'm hoping to do is provoke thought get this unconscious material up into the main part of the house so that people and women in particular can assert themselves and live these lives that they're meant to live, which is this a fully expressed life. Because really having disordered boundaries, that's its own glass ceiling. It's all happening within you, but it is without a doubt a glass ceiling because you cannot go on forever without becoming a bitter martyr. Like that's what ends up happening. You don't think that the women who are bitter martyrs and they're like 50s, 60s, 70s, they plan to become that, right? They weren't like, can't wait to be a bitter martyr. No, it happened over time and over giving and never asserting what they wanted. And then instead of seeing it like, well, I couldn't create boundaries or ask for what I wanted. It's like everyone in my life is entitled and ungrateful and unappreciative and takes advantage of me. And you're like, mm, but what came first, the chicken or the egg? So anyway, that was a long way around the barn to get to this. The revolution itself has everything to do with how we regard ourselves, has everything to do with self-love, 
because I fully believe that self-love as daily actions, right? Not as some feeling and not as some like ambiguous thing. People are like, just love yourself more. Nobody even knows what it means. I know. I talk about that all the time. (laughs) But your daily actions, right? That changes how you are in the world. And you can then really be your best self. And actually, I have a course coming up called Real Love Revolution, where I cover boundaries in that course. But it's really a deep dive into knowing yourself. So it's a 12-week virtual course. It's coming up the end of January. So if anyone is interested, go to terrycole.com forward slash R-L-R for Real Love Revolution. All right. I'm going to put that in the show notes too. And I want to just make a a, a note of, of... To my audience who's listening to this, and and I really, really recommend everyone get this book, but my audience is a lot of people who are having to co-parent with a narcissist. And I have noticed as my children have gotten older that I've had to teach my kids boundaries with their father. And so this is how we we create that revolution. It's very hard to teach boundaries if you don't have them. So (laughs) the goal is if you're going to get a new set of boundaries, start practicing with your own children. Start teaching, especially if if your kids are teenagers, it's an awesome time to teach them. Just through those teaching moments about school and what's going on at school and, you know, so-and-so at school did this and that, you could teach them these skills as well as with their own parent. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really how you break the cycle. And I really, really just, I congratulate you on this book and I thank you for it as well. I think it's an incredible piece of work. Terry, how else can they find you? Anything else? You have a podcast? You want to listen, share that? I do. It's called The Terry Cole Show. It's been around for six years. We've been, I think we just passed 3 million downloads. So it's Lots of people are interested in mental health, which is great. On Instagram, I'm at Terry Cole, T-E-R-R-I-C-O-L-E. You can go to my website, terrycole.com for all other info and go take the boundary quiz. I think you guys will really like it. It's just boundaryquiz.com and it's a free quiz, but I think that you will really find information. I did a video for each archetype. So I really break down the results. Oh, I think I'm going to have to take it. Terry, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Lindsay. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up for your free subscription to Blessings of a Breakup, where you will receive daily spiritual guidance on getting out of your pain and back to who you really are. Go to my website at lindsayellison.com.